Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. Hello, I'm John Langer. Who in Australia hasn't heard of or not to mention seen an image of Paul Hogan? He's about as iconic in Australia and internationally as Uluru and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Possibly what's less known and understood are the ways that Paul Hogan's persona embodies and communicates a very particular version of Australian masculinity a masculinity that's bound by the specifics of history and culture. Andrea Walling is a research fellow at La Trobe University. She's just published a book entitled White Masculinity in Contemporary Australia, The Good Old Aussie Bloke, and she's been contemplating how Paul Hogan, as a major cultural identity, connects to the ways in which masculinity gets constructed and communicated. Welcome to Communication Mixdown, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Now, let me start with a simple question, but actually it's a question that I think leads on to some fairly complex and multi-layered issues. I wanted to ask to start with, who is Paul Hogan, and what does Paul Hogan's persona represent? Well, I think for a lot of people, Paul Hogan represents the everyday man. So he he kind of represents this everyday working-class bloke, um, that a lot of Australian men might feel that they can relate to, particularly in the 60s and the 70s. And in terms of um, his ideal, his masculinity, it's very much a kind of, it's easygoing, he's charming, he's quite enduring, he's a bit of a larrikin, he likes to have a bit of a laugh um, and knows how to have a good time, but also can be quite serious um, in terms of his engagements with his family and whatnot. Now, you point out the emergence of the Hogan persona, and I need, we need to be clear about this. We're really talking about a, an image or a, a representation, not, not the person himself, but the Paul Hogan persona is part of a particular historical trajectory which is connected to a very particular version of masculinity in Australia. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit of that for us. Yeah, so masculinity in Australia has a, a history of the kind of starting from the colonial swagmen um, through to the Anzacs, through to your poets such as Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson, up into your lifesaver surfers, um, and then your kind of sporting stars of the 70s. And and the 
this ideal of masculinity is typified by a number of traits and qualities. So he's a larrikin, uh, he's able-bodied, he's white, he's heterosexual, he's really, you know, against authority, so he's anti-authoritarianism, um, he's, he believes in the underdog, or he fights for the underdog, and he's a bit of a rebel as well. And this kind of image of masculinity has kind of persisted uh, throughout representations in Australian history. You mentioned that there's an interesting, um, a, a bit of a shift after the First World War. Where you've written this piece in the conversation, and you were talking about how the the image of masculinity after the First World War changed to, to, to something different. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so in before the First World War, a lot of the kind of ideal of Australian masculinity was located in the bush and the kind of colonial swagmen who were out in the bush, you know. So Benjo Patterson's um, The Man from Snowy River is a really good example of that kind of example of masculinity. And after the First World War, there was a lot of trauma um, from that. The, the loss of a, a lot of young men at Gallipoli um, led to Australia as a nation um, to look for another kind of image of white identity and masculinity. And so there was a real shift from the bush as a site of masculinity in Australian culture to the beach. And this is where um, you get the kind of emergence of your lifesaver surfers who became who embodied that new kind of virile and whiteness and able-bodied masculinity that was lost post the First World War. Mm. And then there's another shift that, that you also talk about, which has to do with, I guess, the uh, the 70s and the 80s, where you get, I guess you could call it a return to the bush. Yeah, so the 70s and the 80s saw a real, um, what we might call a bit of an awkward revival, so a real kind of shift to kind of reclaim that white identity, that kind of colonial white identity in the bush. And you see that through, um, you know, Victorian bitter advertising, and you also see it through the emergence of the Croc Dundee franchise, uh, which Paul Hogan was a part of. And it was a real kind of return to uh, an Australian masculinity that was located in what was perceived as a dangerous and harsh environment. What, what do you, uh, if I can put this to you in this way, and I think these are some of the things that you've been thinking about, what what gave rise to that revival? Is is there some historical and cultural things that are going on in, in terms of masculinity at that particular time? I'm not, not so much masculinity as opposed to culture. I guess a bit of masculinity as well. So at that time in the 70s, you have women's rights and, and, and a push for women's rights and a recognition of women, not just in Australia, but in New Zealand, in uh, Canada, in the UK, in the US. So that was really a part of that and a real question of what is gender and how do we understand gender and gender roles plays a huge part in that kind of shift of, of reclaiming a kind of older, more traditional form of masculinity. And part of it could also be linked to a real kind of push of what a number of historians have noted around a reclaiming of Australian nationality or a claiming of, of an Australian nationality in mm. pride. Um, and that this was happening kind of around the similar time when we have the abolishment of the white-only policy and an increased acceptance of migration to Australia. So we see so a number of historians have noted an interesting kind of duality that's happened around this time where you've got, on the one hand, um, a push for more international engagement and collaboration and migration to Australia, but at the same time, a kind of install and then a reinstillment of a, of what we might call Australian values um, and, and Australian patriotism. That's mm. interesting because uh, you mentioned this, and this is, in, in fact, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, that was when 
multiculturalism in Australia became a quite an important uh, policy shift as well. And just the way you're talking, it it, it put, puts in my in my mind that maybe the Dundee, the return to the bush, the the sort of masculinity uh, legend, sort of mythos that you're talking about is is precisely around this this time as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the Croc Dundee emerges, I think it's 1986, was the first film. Mm. And we see that kind of play on Australian identity and culture. And then he goes to the US and he's this kind of, you know, real um, natural man. He's got a lot of physical prowess. Um, He's not interested in material lifestyles. And you can kind of see this really interesting clash around what is perceived to be a man of nature or a man of the land. But it's important to note that this man of the land is still a colonial figure rather than um, a recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights and, and voices and cultures. And so it's it's an interesting position that we, we can see through Paul Hogan's Croc Dundee and that emergence of that identity. And there were, uh, I, I looked this up myself, I, there, there were actually three films in the franchise. There was the Crocodile Dundee original, and then there was a couple of other films as well. Yeah, so there was two other films. Um, and they didn't, I think the second one did okay. So there's the Crocodile Dundee, and then there was a third one which didn't do as well. Um, and I think they're actually, from my understanding, they might actually be filming a fourth one. Not the Australian tourism advert, but there was something I was reading that I think Paul Hogan has been doing a bit of filming around a potential fourth Croc Dundee. Mm, I read that as well. Very interesting. Now, you've said that the dominant image of Paul Hogan is as the character Mick Dundee, but you you, you go on to say that this Dundee kind of masculinity has been seriously questioned since its emergence in the 1986 film Crocodile Dundee. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so it has been um, seriously questioned, particularly, you know, when the emergence of Dundee happens, we also see an emergence of kind of the new man, which is um, a, a figure of masculinity typified by products and consumption of the 80s. So in the 80s, you were seeing a lot more material lifestyles and men starting to kind of be seen as consumers. And so a lot of advertising was starting to focus on men as consumers as well. In the past, they'd focused on women. And so we're seeing more engagement with men in buying cars and other kinds of luxuries, being interested in fashion, being interested in grooming and aesthetics. And and then we're also seeing a shift around the kind of emergence of the snag, the sensitive new age guy who is somebody who's interested in um, his what we might call the feminine side and he's more nurturing and caring. And a lot of these kinds of emergence of identities for masculinity really contrast and challenge the kind of croc dundee masculinity, which is quite stoic and not interested in consumption and, and, and kind of tied to this idea of being a man of the land. Mm-hmm. And you also say that the, 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 the Dundee type of masculinity is a very restricted one, that, that it, in fact, it, I think what you say in your article is there are very serious mental health issues that are connected with this as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of research um, that has explored particularly rural and and regional men in Australia, and there's a real issue of high rates of suicide and mental health distress and a lack of help seeking. And a lot of that has to do with that notion of stoicism, that if you're a good old Aussie bloke, you don't need to seek out help for your mental health issues, that you can push through some of these issues without any kind of support, and that this can actually be quite detrimental for a lot of young and older men in Australia. 
Andrea, I was wondering if we could take a break and uh, give you a little bit of a chance to catch your breath, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about Australian masculinity. Yes, absolutely. Kevin Hines Grow delivers gardening and nature-based programs to people of all ages and all abilities. Our programs provide great opportunities for positive personal development and well-being. The Kevin Hines Grow 40th Anniversary Spring Festival will be held on Saturday the 19th of October, 9am to 3pm at 39 Weatherby Road, Doncaster. Come along and stock up on a huge variety of tomatoes and vegetable seedlings, fruit trees, perennials and more at our community nursery. A 3CR supporter. You're with Communication Mixdown, and I'm talking with Andrea Walling. She's a research fellow at La Trobe University, and she's just published a book entitled White Masculinity in Contemporary Australia, The Good Old Aussie Bloke. Andrea, now I'd like to turn from the big screen to the small screen and a television program that you've spent a little bit of time, more than a little bit of time, examining in some detail. The show's called Bloke's World, and I've got to confess that I didn't know anything about it until I read your discussion of the program. It's a bit of a confession there. And I suspect most people listening probably to this show and to 3CR are in the same boat. So you better give us a little bit of an idea and a little bit of a background to this show, Bloke's World, and outline what it's all about. Yeah, so Bloke's World um, is a really interesting show. It's a really good um, comparison could be kind of Wayne's World, um, if anyone is familiar with the Saturday Night Live sketches of Wayne's World and with Mike Myers. And it's it's a public access, um, self-produced show, which, which is focused on blokedom and what they call blokedom. So it's a, it's a show that's all about dirt bikes and racing, drinking VB, sexy women, um, kind of, you know, the best sheds around Australia, the best meat pies around Australia, and all of that. And it's a really interesting show because it's really about featuring, oh, it's really about featuring this kind of normal, ordinary, everyday, working class bloke in his element. So the show is hosted by uh, Addo Knox, and I think at the moment, uh, what, who's called Camera 3. In the past, we had somebody else called Benoit. That was his nickname on the show. And they just go around Australia, and they've done some international touring as well. And they're just really interested in kind of featuring the, the blokey things that they think other men want to see. It's intriguing also, uh, just referring back to a little bit of our conversation earlier with, with about the Paul Hogan persona, because Bloke's World, as you've written, is... Uh, very, very much emphasizes the bush and the rural and outback as opposed to, say, the beach or an urban environment. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so a, a, a huge bulk of the show is very much focused in rural and regional areas, particularly around the dirt bike racing, which you'll actually see a lot in regional areas, um, but also a focus on kind of rural and regional lifestyles. And in some of the really early episodes of Bloke's World, you can see that the hosts are really kind of anti-consumerism and consumption. So they kind of make comments about things like IKEA, not wanting to buy IKEA. They're really focused on consuming Australian-produced goods and services. And that kind of comes through a focus on the rural and regional as well, as opposed to the beach, which I think a lot of people familiarize themselves with when they think about Australia. So there's a real focus on the bush. And a part of that focus, I think, comes back to that idea of the bush as dangerous, as an environment that needs to be mastered and 
And in, in blokes' world, that's what they attempt to do through dirt bike racing and car racing and, and some of the other kind of dangerous activities that they do out there. The, the very, it's very interesting the way you're talking about this because uh, it suggests to me that the, this is a, an attempt again, an attempt to uh, reinvigorate the bush ethos. Absolutely. And um, before they changed their website, they had a saying on there, which I'd grabbed a couple years ago, and I'm really glad I kept it. And it and they said that, you know, Bloke's World is 26 minutes of feel-good light entertainment. It's about blokedom and rediscovering joys of a roaring V8, a V8 engine, a good barbecue, a punt on the dogs, and a bit of a perv. Um, and it's really about you know, immersing yourself in a culture that is re- more reminiscent of the 90s than what they call the snag infest. sorry, more re- reminiscent of the 70s um, than the snag-infested 90s. And that's how they described the show back in 2004. And I think it really is very much a kind of push to revive a more 70s, a more kind of awkward revival of what, a blo- what they feel a bloke should be. We should let people know also that this program has been running since, as you said, uh, I think it's 2003 it started. It's still going strong. Is that right? Yes, it is. It's still going strong. Um, And it's interesting because it's really just Addo um, or Adrian Knox and and someone with two cameras, as he describes it, and they film it on a weekend. So they actually have um, jobs that they go to during the day, and it's on the weekends that they end up filming the show. So it's a kind of pastime hobby that they engage. Mm. I want to quote something that you wrote. Uh, I'll just quote it to you. It says, you've said, Bloke's world is adamant in its dismissal of contemporary ways of being masculine, in particular those that relate rely on grooming, aesthetics, and certain forms of consumerism. What were you getting at here? Because you also say at at the same time that consumerism isn't rejected outright in the show, but it has to be the right kind of consumerism. Yeah, so Bloke's World, as I said earlier, it's really focused on wanting to consume Australian-produced goods and goods that um, are reminiscent of a kind of 70s way of being a man. So it's about old cars. It's about certain kinds of beer that are produced locally. It's about any kinds of goods or services that are produced locally. And if they're not produced locally, if they are international goods and services, then it has to be stuff that would actually reproduce an acknowledgeable masculine identity, so motorcycles or other kinds of high-end brand cars. But what's interesting about Bloke's World is that it's really also focused on consuming things that are accessible for your kind of average working-class man who may or may not have a high income. So they're really focused on promoting goods that aren't won't cost somebody a lot of money, and it's also goods that aren't about the appearance, but actually about kind of outward displays of masculinity. Mm. You've also noted that uh, what you've called the production and performance of aggressive heterosexuality in Bloke's world is very prominent. Could you briefly explain how this works in the show? Yeah, so you don't see this as much in the later episodes, um, but in the really early episodes, you would see a lot. They'd have things like pole position, which was a segment featuring uh, female pole dancers. They would do a little bit of an interview, and then they would have the pole dancer dance. They would often have um, women in bikinis kind of prancing around on the show or leaning over vehicles that have segments like Show Me Your Tool, which would be a woman who'd be kind of suggestively touching a, a tool, and she'd be asking the guy to tell her about it in a kind of sexy manner or what's under the hoodie. So she'd be slowly stripping her clothes and she'd be asking questions about what's under a local man's car or engine. Um, 
And it was a really kind of a way to kind of reaffirm this idea of of, of a proper Australian bloke is a heterosexual one and a heterosexual one that's interested in kind of objectifying a particular kind of woman. And also the other thing that I, I found interesting in, in what you the way you were talking about this program is you use the idea of nostalgia and you you suggest that this program uses a, a kind of nostalgic mode to produce what it, some of the ideas around masculinity. Yeah, it's really trying to bring back the 70s. And I, I mean, I wasn't alive in the 70s, so I can't comment on what it was like. But I know, you know, when you read through, um, you watch old movies or you read about the culture of the 70s, it's really trying to bring back this kind of notion where it was okay to behave in a particular set of ways that was okay to act in a particular set of ways that are now quite, which are today are seen as quite problematic because they might promote racism, they might be promoting um, sexism and, and violence. And so that this kind of nostalgia for a masculinity that is certain is being used um, to sell this idea of masculinity that in today's world, I think it's very uncertain as to what, what it means to be a man. Mm. This this addresses the what what's been called the crisis of masculinity. Yeah. So there's this idea that men are in crisis that um, that they because they can't engage in an old form of masculinity that they don't know what they can do. And I argue that it's not that the men are in crisis, but rather how we understand and think about this concept of masculinity might be still in crisis, and we're still trying to work out what are ways in which men who might want to engage in masculinity to do so that feels authentic to them, um, but also isn't engaging in really problematic practices like, you know, sexual violence against women. Mm. Let's finish up with what I'll describe as a meta question for you and, and for the listeners and for me as well. Now, most people, as I said earlier, most people listening to this show and probably to 3CR would, would not really have anything to do with a show like Bloke's World and for probably good reasons. But what I wanted to ask is, why should we, meaning you and me and the listener, have at least one go at watching an episode of Bloke's World? I think what Bloke's World does really well is sell this idea of ordinariness. And it's something that I think people forget about in an era where we're all kind of being asked to be quite extraordinary. And I think Addo has really picked up on, and perhaps not meaning to, but he's really picked up on this idea of being just an everyday, ordinary person who's not being pushed to to behave or act or do any kind of extraordinary, amazing things. And I think with the advent of social media, we're really seeing this kind of culture develop where we kind of document everything we do um, and congratulate and, and kind of and really kind of amazing achievements. And I think what Bloke's World is doing even though it's got a lot of issues with it um, that we've talked about, I think the one thing it does do well is actually focus on the ordinariness and try to at least give a voice or a sense of a voice to those who might not normally be ever heard because they're living in rural and regional areas. They're not extraordinary movie stars. They're not, you know, your Liam Hemsworth and your Hugh Jackmans. They're just an everyday guy who might have a really brilliant shed that he built that's being featured on the show. And so that's something that I think people could take away from the show, although I think a lot of it is quite problematic and and difficult at times to watch. Uh, But there is that ordinariness that I think is really key. Mm. 
Look, it's been really interesting talking to you and uh, about the, about both about Paul Hogan and about Bloke's World. So I want to thank you for making the time to talk to us on Communication Mixdown. No worries. Thank you for having me. I've been talking with Andrea Walling, and she's a research fellow connected with the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe University. Her book is White Masculinity in Contemporary Australia, The Good Old Aussie Bloke, and it's published by Routledge. And if you do want to have a look at the at the program Blokes World, you can catch it on Seven Mate at one PM on Saturdays. And all the information that we've been discussing will be on the three CR Communication Mixdown website, along with a podcast of this show. That's all from Communication Mixdown this week. We're here again next Monday. Now we've been talking about communicating various versions of Australian masculinity, so I thought we might go out with men at work. Travelling in a fight on a hippie trailhead full of zombies. I met a strange lady, she made me nervous She took me in and gave me breakfast And she said, do you come from a land down under? A women go and men wonder Can't you hear, can't you hear?